This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. As you know, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's leaked draft opinion aiming to overturn Roe v. Wade has ignited a firestorm, and progressives are trying to determine how best to respond. Now, while we know that there will be absolutely devastating consequences for women across the country, it is not yet clear what impact this may have on political concerns like, for example, the midterm elections. So to examine that question and to talk about how we should be messaging and also uh, about a number of actions that we can take, we have convened an all-star panel, uh, all of whom will be very familiar to listeners and uh, viewers to the show. Nina Masavi is Indivisible's organizing manager for Washington and California, and she's also an attorney. Hello, Nina. Hello. Thanks for having me. Will Casey is former communications director for the Washington State Democrats and is currently a writer for The Stranger. He, too, is an attorney. And Will, welcome and congrats on The Stranger gig. It's so awesome. Thanks. I uh, wish I was here under better circumstances. But, you know, this is, uh, <laughs> this is what they do. So. Well, and, and you wrote about it, and we're going to talk about it. And then, of course, Kat Pipkin is on the steering committee for the Washington Indivisible Network and is the executive producer of the show. And she's, of course, a dear friend. Hello, Kat. How are you? Hello, friends. Uh, no, I should say you're all dear friends. What am I saying? We're all dear friends here. So, you know, listen, we're going to be going into detail about the electoral ramifications, as I said, and especially about how we effectively message around this with voters, which, of course, can be crucial. But I do want to start with the legal ramifications, since we do have two attorneys. Uh, neither of you are legal scholars, but you are attorneys. So, Anine, I'll start with you. I think one of the fears with this potential ruling is that it wouldn't just overturn Roe, uh, but it would threaten basically every other right that falls under the 14th Amendment's right to privacy. What are some of the other rights? So, yeah, I'm going to preface that I am not a constitutional scholar. I am an attorney. Um, and so when we look at Supreme Court rulings, Will and I are obviously able to look at it with a little bit of a different lens. And in reading the leaked um, the leaked ruling last week, I immediately started thinking about um, how this could have an impact on even more recent decisions like Obergefell, um, and then very historical de decisions like Loving v. Virginia. Um, and at the end of the day, any right that is not explicitly written in the Constitution is now threatened by this. And I would even make the case that even rights that are explicitly written in the Constitution are now up for grabs. And so when we are looking at the impacts of this specific ruling, it's not just progressive rights that we hold so dear that that are threatened. At the end of the day, the right for a woman to be able to make decisions about her own body and her own reproductive um, rights, that is something that is accepted by a majority of people in this country but it is often politicized as something that the far left wants. But conservative rights are also at risk here. Every right that is not explicitly written in the Constitution is now at risk. And we can look at gun rights is one that's also really polarizing that often falls on the right. And that is something that could be threatened by this type of ruling being upheld and by this specific Supreme Court deciding to rule this way. And it might not be threatened today, but it might be threatened in 20 years with a different Supreme Court. 
definitely something to keep in mind when talking to uh, swing voters. Um, Will, I want to talk about the article that you wrote in The Stranger uh, looking at this draft opinion. Um, and you took issue with what has become kind of one of the main GOP talking points right now, besides decrying the leak. Um, and that is that the court has overturned opinions of the past that were wrong, like uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, separate but equal law, Dred Scott, others. Uh, why, talk about why overturning Roe would be different. Well, so there's uh, basically like two things here that, that jumped out to me when I was reading the draft opinion. So one, um, whenever you're overturning precedent at the Supreme Court or whenever you're asking them to do that, uh, you usually have to contend with this legal principle that's called a reliance interest, which is basically just a fancy way of saying like normal people need to be able to plan basic stuff about how their life is going to unfold. Hmm. Um, and the more people who are relying on a given interpretation of the law as it is currently, the more hesitant a court should be in overturning that interest. Um, and so the problem here is that Alito just frankly, throughout the opinion, either chooses to frame this reliance interest in a way that is, <clears throat> in my opinion, pretty deliberately bad faith uh, in underselling the impact that this is going to have um, on everyone in the country. Um, and also, he, uh, he really just seems to not seem to care that much um, about the just physical trauma and like medical danger that this puts a lot of people who are pregnant in, um, because he spends an inordinate amount of time talking about how, well, social stigmas for unmarried women who have children are now like less of an issue than they were in the 50s and 60s. And like, we're better at handling adoptions without ever grappling with the fact that like, maybe those things were the result of Roe v. Wade itself. Um, and so I think that that hole in his reasoning is pretty obvious. Um, the other issue here is that it's just not accurate to con to compare Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a decision that said black people are not human enough to sue for their own rights in court, um, or, you know, other major, uh, you know, issues like that in the past, like Dred Scott, for example, similar case. Um, and the issue that we have with this particular uh, type of reasoning is that those past decisions were preventing people from accessing rights under the Constitution. Right. And so overturning them was expanding the uh, electorate, expanding people who have access to these rights, whereas here, the court's taking the exact opposite approach, right? Yeah. They're taking clearly settled law, which many of them said Roe v. Wade was in their confirmation hearings, and they're throwing it out the window with no regard for how it's going to upend millions and millions of people's lives. So. That warrants its whole uh, the, a wholly different discussion about the confirmation hearings and what they said during them. But, you know, another GOP talking point is that, you know, all this would do is just turn the issue back over to the states. It's a states' rights thing. Why should this not be a states' rights issue? Uh, well, there's basically uh, you just shouldn't have to rely on the outcome of an election to have basic autonomy over your own body, frankly. Um, and this is a court that has... Uh, really made a, a little cottage industry of sort of doing hand-waving at, oh, this other solution is perfectly viable without explaining how they have completely undermined the viability of that alternative solution, right? So here, if you are, let's just say, a woman with, um, you know, limited income in a state that is dominated by Republicans, this same state has gutted your ability to sue for uh, to prevent gerrymandering, so you can actually have responsive elections in your state. They mm -hmm. have completely out, uh, outlawed the ability of the federal government to regulate the kind of spending that happens in those local elections, so you're not getting good information about what the candidates stand for. Um, and finally, they have gutted uh, 
the, the Voting Rights Act and your ability to make sure that you're not getting, um, you know, disproportionately uh, having your vote diluted. And so if the court's not going to step up and do its job to make sure that we actually have fair and free elections, meaningful elections at every level where people are actually forced to compete for the majority approval of the you know districts and that they're running in then you can't really say that oh states rights these people can just decide it you know and if you don't like it you can move that's just not a viable option for enough people and and frankly it just doesn't hold uh, rhetorical water those are phenomenal points i almost feel like we should put those on a a pdf for folks uh, to have access to i'm serious um and just talk very briefly because you talked about this in the article what would the impact be here in washington state um, it's it's kind of hard to say, honestly, at, at this point. So legally speaking, um, Democrats in Olympia have already passed a law several years ago that uh, codifies the right to an abortion here in Washington state. So for now, um, when this opinion does become law in several weeks, people in Washington can still access a safe and legal abortion if you could, you know, yesterday. Um, the issue that's going to happen is that it's hard to project exactly how much additional capacity is going to be taken up by patients coming in from right. Idaho, Montana, and right. other red states that are in our region um, needing to access the care that they can't get in their own states. Um, current projections that I've seen are somewhere around like 385% increase in demand for services. And so right now, um, a colleague of mine, Hannah Krieg at The Stranger, wrote an excellent piece um, talking about how city and county governments are looking to support um, providers as they deal with this increased demand. Um, So I highly recommend everyone go check out her piece as well. I will include that in the show notes. Uh, I, I want to shift gears and talk about the political implications, as I, as I said we would, um, both from a legislative and also from an electoral perspective. And I'll just start by saying there is no clear legislative path to fight this now. But I do want to discuss what can be done when we have an expanded majority. And I'll just take this moment here to say, I want to be very clear about this. Expanding the majority is our goal in this election. I'm going to say it one more time. Expanding the majority is our goal in this election. I know that that's hard to hear, and I know it's a huge, enormous lift, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit more, but we're not looking at, looking at status quo here, and I think this situation especially makes that point. Um, so in terms of a, leg- uh, a legislative remedy with an expanded majority, Kat, uh, I know that you have read Harvard legal scholar Lawrence Tribe, and he is suggesting a legislative path that is getting some traction. What is he saying? It's pretty simple. It's just a few things. The first is to get rid of the filibuster. We've already had lots of conversations about that. Secondly, pass H.R. 3755, the Women's Health Protection Act of 2021 to protect medical services, including abortion. Third, pass the 13 Justices Act. And lastly, appoint four new justices. And, you know, something interesting that I've been reading, there's polling that supports a lot of this, right? There is. There is. The morning consult poll shows uh, Americans across the spectrum supporting Roe 64 percent against 36 percent. Term limits. This is interesting. Term limits for SCOTUS justices is now at 6621. That is something I'm guessing most people hadn't thought of until a few weeks ago. Uh, And then lastly, in favor of expanding the court is now a majority of Americans at 55 percent to 36 percent with a few undecideds. And I will just add that there's a morning consult poll that shows that 51% of Americans now no longer trust the Supreme Court, and that number is rising. Nina, um, I'll just ask you very broadly, because I know you have a lot to say on this, how do you think this draft opinion uh, and the leak of it changes the dynamics of the midterm election? So this is, in my opinion, like a direct 
consequence of people deciding not to show up in previous elections, specifically in the 2016 election. Mm. Um, and, and this, what we are seeing today is not by accident. This is by design. This is something that conservatives, Mitch McConnell specifically, and those who help him carry out his evil plans. Um, this is exactly what they had planned. They wanted to create the perfect stars aligning situation where they had a conservative leaning court and a state that is that their state legislative body is conservative leaning and they introduced a bill that had to make its way up to the supreme court it's not by chance that this specific these specific bills made their way up to the supreme court it's by design not no not just like any bill ever can make its way up to the supreme court there are very strict rules on what a supreme court can actually rule on and so this was by design and this is a direct consequence of people being apathetic and people not showing up to vote this is in action rearing its really ugly head and i hope that this lights a fire under people's asses. Pardon my language. But <laughs> what I'm hoping for in terms of a shift in dynamic right between now and the midterms is we don't have another situation where people are resting on their laurels like they were in 2016 and just assuming that because we have the White House, because we have the House and the Senate, that we'll be fine and it's fine for people to just stop engaging civically. The problem with grassroots led movements in history is that once they have quote one they feel like it, things can just you know we absolutely saw that in 2008 right exactly and 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 honestly like this decision is a clear a, a clear depiction of why the fight for women's rights and woman's right to choose is not over and was not over with roe v wade and we had to keep talking about it but we didn't enough and so we're here now and hopefully what this does is it shifts our dynamic back to putting us in a place where we are thinking like we were in the 2020 election that it's do or die we either increase we either hold or increase our majority or we lose right. like losing the house or senate is should not be an option and that's only going to happen if we continue to not act in the way that we did in 2016. I, I want to circle around to the question that I had uh, posed earlier that we, we put a pin in about getting uh, legislation, uh, legislators rather, who reflect our values. Uh, and I'll just point out that four members of this current Supreme Court were appointed by presidents who lost the majority vote. So we have a judiciary now and largely a legislative body that do not really reflect our values as a nation. So you have a lot to say on this as well, Nina. How do we fix this? How do we elect leaders who reflect our values? So this is not something that can be fixed overnight, right? Kat laid out the, the, the perfect scenario. If we had a Senate that actually represented the things that people care about today in America, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or no party preference or one of the other uh, third party preferences, you cared about voting rights. The majority of people cared about voting rights. They care about reproductive rights and a woman's right to choose. 
The problem is we have a Senate structure right now that is essentially blocking anything from making it to the floor. And we already tried to get rid of the filibuster last year. It didn't work. And so we know today that the current Senate does not represent the majority of the people. And the only way you can fix that is to elect people who do represent And it's difficult when we're looking at the like traditional political game. And I think Will can probably talk about this a little bit more than I can having worked for the party. But the the game that a lot of the senators are playing right now is politics, not legislating. And they're not representing people. They're playing a political game that is entirely driven by money. And you mean this to include Democrats, right? I mean this to include Democrats. I mean this especially Democrats. Um, And the only way that we can change that is if we start showing that grassroots power is a higher currency than the actual political dollars that they're earning. So we haven't seen it work yet in the Senate, but we've seen it in the House. We've seen members like uh, Representative uh, Alexandria ocasio and Iona Presley, and even in, in California, my folks, Katie Porter, Mike Levin, these are individuals who were voted in with grassroots power, and they ran their campaigns on those on that grassroots message. They weren't taking a ton of money from special interests who were putting out these really big ads for them and doing mailers and all of the, you know, splashy political stuff. They were knocking doors. They were getting people to knock doors for them and they were getting the votes that they needed. That's grassroots power. We need to start doing that on the Senate side so that we can start getting members in the Senate who actually represent us, not people who have been there for 50 years and just are playing that political game and they're completely detached from what the reality of their constituency is. Anybody who's flying back and forth on a private plane and and hasn't come to visit half of their state in, you know, 10 years, like that's not somebody who understands what's going on in their state. And that's a lot of senators. I'm not just pointing out to one senator. That's a lot of senators. They're completely removed from the reality of their constituency. And it's because they're playing that political game. So we need that grassroots power to get elected officials who actually represent us because they understand that that power is worth more than any donation they can get from a special interest. It's a bit of a big lift to, I think, go from a House district to an entire state, but very, very doable. And I will get into in a moment uh, just how we're going to kind of get our heads around all the things that we're going to need to do here for this election. Will, um, you know, I I know that you probably have some things to add to uh, what what Nina was saying. How do you and you and I've had this conversation a lot. um, How do you think we elect leaders who reflect our values? Well, I think that I, first off, I just want to say I want to echo everything that Nina just said. I think that like from within the party and for those of us who have left, um, that is very much like a, a very strong current, especially among um, you know those of us who have been activated uh, since 2016, right? Whether that's just not having been engaged before, or finally you know being old enough and secure enough in our careers to be able to devote the time to making a difference. Um, the challenge that I would just say is that 
there are limits to the power of grassroots organizing, right? Especially in the like electoral environment that this court has created, where a Republican opponent can just literally back up a Brinks truck to a cable station and just bury, you know, a candidate that is not competing in that way as well. And so like the thing that I think is really important for everyone to understand, and I truly do not mean this in like a depressing, dispiriting way, like, but if you're not aware of the real stakes that we're facing here, if we're not, you know, understanding that we're trying to move mountains, it's going to feel discouraging to you when you, you know, are... I think it's important to set expectations. I mean, I think that's one of the mistakes that we made during the early parts of the Biden administration. So yeah, absolutely, 100%. And, and so I think that the point here is that we are not fighting a fair fight here, right? Like this is not an army of conservative pro-life activists, you know, who are knocking on doors compared to our, you know, um, pro-freedom for everyone to make their own decisions, uh, you know, coalition, right? This is a um, 30 plus year old movement funded by several, um, you know, extremely wealthy coal and oil barons. And I know this is going to sound quite conspiratorial, but please, everyone go read Jane Meyer's excellent book, Dark Money. This is cited mm-hmm. throughout yeah. her place. I, this is this is the problem of living in this world. It's like you try to describe these things accurately and objectively, you sound like a crazy person. Um, and so, Hey, man, we're not paranoid. We just know what's going on, right? That's this, is, this is what I'm trying to get across here, <laughs> um, which is that, like, the, they have been astroturfing these movements for decades, right. right? They have been underwriting people who are showing up to abortion clinics, intimidating doctors, you know, harassing their state legislators, taking over primaries in Republican states. Like this is a whole of their entire society movement, right? They built the entire Federalist Society since Roe v. Wade. So we know what we're up against. Exactly. Yeah. And so if we're going to counter that, we have to build institutions that can you know counterweight those things not just rely on you know electoral engagement although that is the first thing right so the first you know issue is we do just have to end the filibuster and that means we've got to get at least two more democratic senators and that's going to take you know an enormous effort from everyone involved but beyond that we also have to start building up these alternative institutions to make sure that we are building a pipeline of quality and you know like professional judges who are going to use the power that's available to them in a way that serves justice just as much as the you know conservatives have been bending the legal you know uh system to their uh political ends for the last 30 years as well so yeah 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 (laughs) you know all of that let's 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 go ahead and just throw all of that into the into the mix cat i know you have some some things to say about this you're a veteran you know activist and an organizer what what, what are your thoughts here on how we elect leaders that that will reflect our values well i think it's important to remember that what they're trying to do is knock down as many pillars of democracy at this moment at a time to dispirit us they're trying to suppress the vote for the midterm election. And I'm here to say that's horse Pataki. In the last two elections, we have turned out more new voters than ever before in recorded electoral history in the United States. So not only can we do it despite all of these structural obstacles that they've systematically put in place, we haven't just, you know, we it's not, oh, we can do it, we can do it. Come on, guys. No, we can do it because we've done it. We've done it the last two elections in a row. All we have to do is turn out again the way we did two years ago, and we will win, and we will expand our majority, and then we will be able to make the kinds of structural change that both Will and Nina were talking about. This is why you're so damn good. Also, horse Kentucky is new to me. Hadn't heard that. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt that. I'll see if the FCC has a problem with that when we air this on uh, Terrestrial Radio. Will, you had something to add to that? 
Yeah, I just want to, uh, you know, tie in on this conversation by saying, like, the reason they built all these institutions was because of what Kat's saying, right? Like, they're afraid of popular power. They know that they don't have the, the you know, majority approval on these policy positions, which is why they've shifted so much of their policy agenda through the legal system, because that's where their money makes the biggest difference. It's where they don't have to contend with popular approval. And it's where they know that they can, you know, continue to just grind year after year after year without a lot of people paying attention. So I just want to echo Kat's point that, like, there are reasons for optimism here. Good. Yeah. I mean, if anybody has been paying attention to uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, uh, absolutely laser focus on the courts, this is why. And this is what we have to do. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. So now I want to talk about motivation. I want to be very, very careful uh, when, when I discuss this, but I do want to talk about how this issue can motivate our base. Um, and uh, let's start here. Nina, you've mentioned that a lot of the past legal victories that we have come to see as unassailable, Roe, Obergefell, others, uh, they are now under threat. How do you think this fact alone should motivate people? So I think this should, this should motivate everybody across the spectrum to recognize that everything that we hold dear to us in our democracy, um, everything that we're taught, not just attorneys and, and law students, but things that we're taught like at a young age in learning about the Constitution, learning about our rights, all of those things are are being threatened right now. And that should motivate everybody regardless of what issue you care about, to be engaged in the process. And I say that knowing that this also means that it can motivate people who don't necessarily agree with everything that I believe or everything that we believe here. And we might not all agree on everything. But at the end of the day, we need people to be civically engaged. Whether you're on the left or the right or the middle, you need to be civically engaged. That's the only way that you have a, a a body of people who represents you. So what I'm hoping for the next couple of months is that we use this attack on this one right as a way to understand that it's our opportunity to ensure that people are turning out. We're doing voter registration drives. We're, we're talking about candidates we care about. We're talking about issues that we care about. And we're getting people out to vote. And that might mean that our messaging might change a little bit. How you talk to an independent voter or a swing voter might be different than how you talk to a progressive, but the important part is to find that common ground with folks, find that mutual understanding, and get them to come out and vote, and get them to realize that maybe one candidate is a better representative for them than another candidate, but if we get everybody out there, I think Kat mentioned it really beautifully, we've done it the last two election cycles, we've gotten a lot of people out there, and what we care about has won because that's what the majority of Americans care about. So if we do that again, we'll be successful. And, and that's what I am hoping people get from this. I I'm hoping people aren't as discouraged as they've been in this last week for the next four months, because it's really easy to fall into that pattern. And that's exactly what that's exactly what Mitch McConnell and that's exactly right. Yeah. The MAGA, MAGA representatives all want. They want us to feel discouraged and feel like it's hopeless. And we need to remember how damn powerful we are. And I think the last two elections are a perfect reminder of that. You know, Kat, just sort of dovetailing on that, you know, we talked about this, touched on this a little bit earlier. That a lot of this just hearing this may be overwhelming to people, right? People are just like, good Lord, you know, we did we did the work in 2020. We did the work in 2018. And now, you know, we're talking about expanding the Senate. We're talking about saving our, our democracy and, and now preserving rights that we thought were secure for the last hundred years. 
In your mind, how do we keep this from being overwhelming to people? Well, I think we just remember that we are the majority in this country. You know, we we have the power to protect our thin majority and to win in 2022. And all it takes is even just women turning out. Uh, if you identify as a woman and you, sh you show up to vote, we will win. Uh, abortion is one of the most motivating issues across all mobil mobilization and persuasion targets, period. Uh, you know, left, right, center, people really care about this issue. So for us, you know, we will win. There's no way we don't win if people turn out to vote. Um, I, I want to acknowledge that that there's real burnout here and that that it sucks. We've been doing this now for five years, right? Many people got involved because they didn't believe the horror that the 2016 election was. Um, but it'll be, it's worth it. And it's worth it because like uh, many people, the arginous and black and brown sisters and brothers have learned is you, you don't get the luxury of stepping back. You have to just keep going one step in front of the other and we will get there. We have the power. I just wanna remind everybody, this is depressing, it's frustrating, but we have the power. We are the majority, like Nina's saying. If we turn out and vote, we will win. Nina, when we were prepping for this, you said something that really uh, piqued my interest. You said we need to make engagement cool again. Talk about that. Yeah, so actually I didn't tell you both this um, when we were talking prior to this, but this came to me because uh, my partner and I were shopping at a Goodwill and um, I had found uh, one of those, these games that I used to play when I was a kid, which was a trivia game about U.S. history and, and the Constitution. And on it, the, the tagline for the game was make, uh, make being smart cool. Mm. And that's like how they marketed it to, to kids, right? And so it has all these fun graphics on it. And I, I got it because I was like, <laughs> I have to, this is my childhood. And they have them in all different subject areas. But I remember thinking that when we were growing up, it started to like be a little bit taboo to be engaged. It started to be taboo to be smart. It started to be really cool to only care about social media and your appearance and, and, and being disengaged, for lack of a better word. And so like, now you're younger, so I'll stipulate. What years are you talking about? Are you you're talking about the, the, the early uh, 2000s? The early, early 2000s, like, yeah. like early, late 90s, early 2000s. And we have, we're now in a place where the reason why Donald Trump won, aside from us having like a glaring misogyny problem in America, people really liked that he was so vocal about knowing nothing. Like they loved that he was disengaged. They loved that he was just this like cool guy, right? And and even before Donald Trump, I think there was like a poll or something that I had seen about uh, uh, Bush Jr. that like people voted for him because he was somebody that they would want to sit and have a beer with. That was the classic line. Somebody like, you'd want to have a beer with. What? Is just why right but that's 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 like where we're that's where we're at right now and the beautiful thing is i think we're in a 
swing in the other direction because people are trying to people in this movement, right? The grassroots movement, they're trying to make it so that being engaged is cool again. And that means working within the system that we have. So using social media to get people engaged, finding ways to have things be visually appealing so that you catch somebody's attention, framing things in a way that people can, can relate to and understand and grasp getting influencers who their only thing that they do is just be famous on social media to talk about these issues. So I think like, as we're moving through this election and the next election and all of the elections moving forward, the key that we have to remember is that the only way to keep people engaged in the civic process is to is for them to feel like it's cool. For people to feel like being engaged is the cool thing to do, and it's actually not cool to be disengaged. Right. And I think if we're able to do that, we'll get more people to turn out. More people will be just like generally wanting to learn about the process and we'll have that we'll can you continue to have that majority and continue to win seats i think that indivisible was absolutely formed because of exactly what you're talking about i think it absolutely became very very cool quote unquote to to to, to push back against what was happening in this country and we need that sort of energy again well i'm just going to ask you from everything that you're hearing uh, you're you're no longer a political consultant but you used to be a comms guy as a journalist now what do you make of these appeals? Well, I think that like uh, Nina's entirely right. You know, it is something about like generating a more of a like positive cultural attitude towards doing this work. And that's part of what I was trying to set up when I was talking about like, this is not a thing that happened overnight for the conservatives, right? They've been doing this for 30 years. And I think there's like a establishment tendency to be like, tisk tisk, you don't understand how long it takes to get things done when what we should really be saying is like, excuse us, um, you should have been building these institutions to push back against this stuff for 30 years. So now we are picking up the work you never did, right? Um, and I think that that's a bit, understandably comes with some hostility on the part of the base. And, you know, instead of meeting a conflict and finding a way to, you know, work in tandem, centrist members seem to just kind of uh, crap on the activists in order to try and demonstrate some sort of like moderateness or whatever. I don't really ever understand. I don't either. Um, I don't. Yeah. What I think it really boils down to is uh, something I sent you a couple of days ago, Stefan, from, from David Roberts, a, you know, climate writer who I follow, where, you know, he says that, uh, you know, turn out and, and vote for a bunch of clueless, ineffectual, gerontocratic ninnies because it's the only way to keep fundamentalist nutballs from completely destroying the country uh, is a truly unpleasant political rallying cry, but it's nonetheless empirically and morally irrefutable. So, oh, God, I love Roberts. He's so awesome. Kind of where I feel like we're at, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, and to be serious about it, though, I think that the, the, the thing that, you know, I would love to see from more establishment democratic figures is more um, honesty and contrition, especially when speaking to the, the base um, about how we got here. Right. Because, I mean, like, uh, you know, I don't blame Patty Murray for any of this stuff at all. But the fact is, she has been there literally since Planned Parenthood v. Casey was decided. And in that case, four out of the five Supreme Court justices voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. So, like, we've been seeing this coming, you know? Um, and I think that if you're going to ask a whole bunch of people to spend their weekends and evenings doing this work, you've got to be honest with them about, like, why it is so necessary that they engage. Um, and I think as long as those two, you know, messages are delivered in tandem, I think you're going to, yeah, I think you've got a, a significant chance of, you know, uh, averting this, however long trend of midterm elections being disappointing for the, you know, president's party.
And, and I will say just a mea culpa here. You know, I did not get active until uh, 2016, 2017 myself. The show is now, uh, it's, it's just over five years old. And so, you know, the, for anybody watching who might be feeling the same sorts of things, just know we're in this together, right? We, we, we're, we're making up for lost time, but we're going to do it. And I think it's going to require a long-term commitment, as all three panelists are saying. So let's talk about how we message to the swing voters and the low propensity Dems that we know we're going to need to win. Um, Kat, I'll start with you on this. What do we say to people regarding this leaked opinion uh, and, and really about all the other rights that it threatens? I think we make it absolutely clear to people that the majority of Americans support safe, legal and accessible abortion care and that we'll fight today and vote come November with this absolutely top of mind. Will, um, how do you think we, and I, I'm asking you to put your comms hat back on because I know that this is something that you uh, specialize in. How do you think we communicate the urgency of this moment to swing voters in a way that really truly motivates? Well, I think it helps that it seems to naturally be trickling down to people. Uh, I just saw a poll this morning that said um, voters are, you know, among those who are already thinking about this question, um, there's only a one percentage point difference between people's top issue being the economy versus abortion rights. Um, so, you know, I think that that is already starting to, you know, um, I hadn't which, seen that. That's very interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is a great example for those of us in the media who are like, oh, we have no impact on how the like. No, 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 no. The fact that there has been wall to wall coverage of this for ten days matters, right? So I think that first of all is important. Um, but the, the other thing here is that I think, uh, particularly with swing voters who are regular voters but who sort of waffle between um uh parties or people who are regular voters or sorry unreliable voters but whenever they do vote they vote for you know progressive uh, causes i think both audiences would hear this populist sentiment about the fact that these are judges who are not elected and they're making decisions about your body without your consent right like it's it's about these you know this judicial activism from the right because that's what set this you know anti-row movement on fire in the first place and frankly there's just no reason to reinvent the wheel when our enemies have already been very successful using this rhetoric you know so i think that's that's the main appeal is to just like drive home that no one got your okay to make this decision right literally nobody you were talking about historical trends earlier, and this, I think, is on the mind of virtually everybody who is trying to do the work to win this midterm election. And one of the things that, that we hear about is, is the backlash effect. And it doesn't just happen here in the United States. It happens virtually in every uh, electoral democracy uh, in, in, in the world. People seem to reflexively want this change when, say, like this, especially when the economy is bad. Nina, I wonder, how do we, is there a way in your mind that we can talk about this latest development that shakes people out of that thinking of like, you know, throw the bums out? How do you look at it? I think this, the backlash effect, it swings both ways, right? It swings in our favor sometimes and it swings in, in the other party's favor sometimes. And the problem with that is it continues to just be a game of politics. It continues to be a, a polarizing uh, game of how can we spend more money and get our message out better without really understanding the people who are actually voting and why they are swing voters, right? Like mm. they're called swing voters for a reason. And it's because people don't know what these voters want at the end of the day. And so we don't know which way they're going to swing. And what, uh, what I've seen work 
is deep canvassing, sometimes called deep values canvassing. And I believe that the only way for us to move forward during this election and every election from now until forever is for us to start looking at how can we talk to every voter, find their shared values with us, and talk about why one candidate should be preferred over the other. Our traditional like direct voter contact methods, they're often a way to share information quickly before the person hangs up and identify whether that person is in support and get them to commit to vote. But a lot of times, the moment that the person says, oh, I don't know, or oh, that I'm not in support of that, the conversation is over. There isn't a lot of effort to persuade. And that's what deep canvassing is. And it needs to be done even outside of electoral times. Um, but there, there has to be that effort to say, okay, maybe you, you care deeply about uh, abortion rights in the sense that you don't, you don't want people to have the right to have an abortion, but maybe that's not your number one issue. And maybe you actually care more about something else. How can we talk about why one candidate is better than another candidate on that issue that you care about more? But I want to acknowledge not everybody is persuadable. There are some people that they are single issue voters. They are they're abortion voters or they are uh, gun rights voters or I don't know. I know people because I live in California. And uh, of, of course, I have known people who are like, only cannabis voters. Like if the person doesn't support cannabis being legalized federally, they won't vote for that person, right? But we need to know what they care about in order to be able to talk to them about why one candidate might be better than another. And the more that we start understanding people and start being able to, to understand that shared value and come from that place of mutual understanding, we'll be able to stop considering so many people swing voters and actually get a handle on what the electorate wants and make sure that the candidates are actually representing them. I'm really curious to hear the feedback ultimately of this, this deep canvassing. I mean, how will you be processing the information that will be coming back from the deep canvassing? So we actually did a pilot um, program last year for just deep values canvassing, not around elections, but just around issues. Um, and we had Indivisible Skagit included in that pilot program. And um, I, I'm not going to speak for them, but in my check-ins with them, they've felt it was extremely successful um, and really just gave a new way of thinking about how to talk to your neighbors and how to talk to people in your community. Um, and we'll be relaunching that program as a larger program um, post-election for just values. But between now and the election, we're also doing deep canvassing for electoral work. So we believe that it's successful and we'll be essentially checking the measure of success based on um, what the results are in November, because that's really our only measure of being able to see if it works. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Um, <laughs> that's but, the disappointing part. But there are other examples of where it's worked. You know, in West Virginia, a nonprofit called Unpack, who uh, Indivisible National is a big supporter of, uh, they ran deep, can deep values canvassing uh, during the voting rights uh, fight, and they were going and door 
door knocking. They, their goal was every West Virginian. And they had students from West Virginia going and doing the door knocking, talking about voting rights. There was no distinction whether they were going to be knocking on Democrats or Republicans. It was everybody. Uh, they wanted to knock every door. And they had thousands of conversations with people. And they were able to get people who were Republicans, who were conservatives, to call their senators and say, I'm so-and-so, I'm a, I'm a conservative, I voted for you, and I want you to vote in favor of this voting rights bill. We need to get rid of the filibuster so we can, we can pass this voting rights bill. And that was a, a, a tangible success. They, they did something that most people thought wasn't, they weren't going to be able to do in West Virginia, is get people to support this bill that, unfortunately, neither of the senators in West Virginia supported. And unfortunately, we know both of their names. I wish that I didn't. Uh, I want to put us in a position where we never have to utter the, the name ever again. He who lives on the on million the dollar yacht. Exactly. <laughs> so let's land where we always do, which is actions. This is the most important part. So, and Kat, I know that you have a ton of actions to, to, to uh, alert us to. Um, so the floor is yours. Great. Well, you know, it's important to remember that while abortion is legal in this country, uh, it's not necessarily accessible. So our, our search for reproductive justice demands that if you can, that you uh, contribute to an abortion access fund. Here in Washington State, we're supporting the Northwest Abortion Access Fund, NWAAF. Easiest, quickest way since we're on a podcast is to text NWAAF to 707070. Now, we have, because we're indivisible, uh, and fully half of the more than two dozen events that'll be happening tomorrow are indivisible supported or organized. Um, we have a list of state actions that people can take and, and we can include a QR code to those in the show notes. Um, but for the uh, auditory listeners, if you go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash bands off, B-A-N-S-O-F-F, hyphen actions, bans off actions, you can get the full list of actions. And that also links through to Spanish, where we have a complete list of, of actions you can take to help today. And then I would lastly say to all of us, if you can't get to a rally tomorrow, for heaven's sake, take some action. Go to the actions, take some action. You can postcard, you can write, you can canvas, you can donate, you can talk to your neighbors, you can learn more. Uh, and, you know, from now till November, I think we all need to remember that it's electoral work all the way, baby. Absolutely. Now till November, our entire job is to turn people out for this vote, period. That's it. We got to expand our majority and we will win. Will, I know that you wrote about uh, donating to the NWAAF. Any other things to add to that? Uh, just one last plug for uh, Hannah's piece about um, lobbying your local city government or county government, uh, because, uh, you know, in addition to, you know, everyone should definitely contribute to those abortion access funds. Number one, most helpful way you can immediately take an action, you know, without having to even leave the room you're sitting in right now listening to this podcast. Um, but I think that the other, you know, uh, more tangible, um, you know, if, if you can't get out to Canvas or what have you, I would call your city councilor. Google who your county councilor is, find out who your county executive is, no matter where you live, um, and just make sure that they hear from you that you think it's a huge priority that they should be supporting these providers who are going to have to be dealing with, like I said, as much as a 300-something percent increase in patient demand, yeah. um, because apparently Idaho's problems are now our problems, too. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well put. Um, Nina, you get the final word this week. Oh, thank you. Well, I want everybody here to listen to me very clearly. Anybody who tells you that it's a long shot for us to win and increase our majority in November is lying to you. They're here. lying. And they need to, for some reason, make themselves feel a little bit better about not doing anything. It's not a long shot. <laughs> you, we can win. We can win and expand our majority. We just have to keep doing exactly what we've been doing, which is showing up, standing up, and fighting. It's not a long shot. We absolutely can do it. Cat laid out the numbers. We can do it. We just got to get the same number of people to vote, same number of people to turn out. It's not a long shot. Don't listen to those people. If they tell you anything, just stop talking to them until after November. And we appreciate you all. Yeah. Anybody who's listening to this, anybody who's taking action, thank you so much for, for doing that and for listening to us ramble. <laughs> that is No, that is exactly right. That's a perfect place to, to leave it. I, I was going to say something along the lines of come sit at the cool kids table, y'all. This is where the action is. But yeah, for sure. We really, really appreciate you. We know that there's a lot of work to do. We know that we're in this thing together. And we know, as Nina said, and as everybody on the panel today said, we absolutely can win. So let's get in there. Let's do the work that we need to do. We will save our democracy and we will save our fundamental rights. And that is it for this week. Nina Masabi, thank you so much. Thank you. Kat Pipkin, as always, my friend, thank you. Thanks, Stefan. And Will Casey, again, congrats on the gig. And uh, everybody, check out Will at uh, thestranger.com. Thanks so much, Stefan. Always glad to be here. And that'll do it for this week. If you would like to see a video of this or any of our programming, head to facebook.com slash indivisiblepodcast. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin and thanks as always to Lori Caldwell. My thanks as well to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.